I do feel like there is a better future in store, but it takes a village, right? So don't throw away your privacy rights because it's just too hard and do nothing. You don't have to do everything, but do what matters to you. I do have privacy settings on all my important accounts, very well curated and accounted for and not so much in things like recipe sites that don't matter. You know, and so I would encourage people not to be too downhearted about the situation today, to just keep plugging away, do what they can, what they're comfortable with, and help, you know, help us build something better for the future. Because I do think now is a, is a real pivoting point with all the different pressures that we have from various external factors on us right now that are impacting what we're all doing. And so it's a good time to really think about possibilities and how to make those first steps in a better direction. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the question, is capitalism in crisis? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial and technology markets can be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is brought to you by ABEX, and I'm Michelle Dennity, your co-host of our latest series examining the role of digital identity in advancing a consent-based economy. Joining me today, you're in for a treat. For the latest chapter of our series is Ruby Zeffo, Chief Privacy Officer at Uber and spirited advocate for privacy and security and a multi-decade friend of mine. So I'm super excited. Ruby believes that privacy and security work best together as a dynamic duo, optimizing both when possible and when one must sacrifice for the other, understanding all considerations in context. My kind of gal. Public debate and legislation in these fields are at an all-time high as the world struggles to protect itself from the bad guys while being respectful of individuals' privacy rights. The exciting technological innovations fueling the growth of new and old business give us an opportunity to design privacy and security into the user experience from the very start. Privacy and security don't hinder innovation. They enhance it. Ms. Zeffo is a frequent speaker on these and other law practice and leadership topics with a special interest in women's equality and development. Previous to joining Uber in 2018, she served as Chief Privacy and Security Counsel at Intel. Stay tuned, Identikit Sequent X with Ruby Zeffo is coming up next. And now back to this week's episode of Smarter Markets. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another Saturday morning here with us at Smarter Markets. Yeah, it's Saturday. We time travel here. I'm here with one of my buddies from a very, very long time when our childrens were just little peanuts and before they launched into the world and before there was such a thing as privacy engineering and identity was just a baby and we were doing all sorts of cool stuff. So welcome, 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 Ruby Zeffo. Introduce yourself in a more casual way to the listening public. Well, hello there. I am Ruby Zeffo, and that is the way to pronounce it. <laughs> Nazi foe. Coming in here from Palo Alto, California, with slightly orange air, but not bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's only slightly orange air. But you know what? Let's get right into it. So, Ruby of the orange air, 
tell us a little bit about your background and how you found yourself in intellectual property and identity and as chief privacy officer for Uber. That's a lot of stuff, man. It is a lot of stuff, but I've been around a while, so I didn't have to really cram it into a short period of time. <laughs> That's the benefit of being a little bit older. It's true. We've taken our leisure. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I uh, I had no lawyers in my family. So when I graduated from law school, all I knew was what I saw on TV, which is you're a litigator. You go to trial. That's what lawyers do, right? Am I right? Of course I'm right. You, you would know you were one too. So uh, I went into IP litigation as one does in the Silicon Valley and, uh, Really liked it until, you know, I was bullied so much that I decided maybe it wasn't the job for me being a young female litigator. So uh, uh, when the dot-com boom just was in its nascent stages, we were all getting poached away. Went to Sun Microsystems, where I did trademark work and then ballooned into marketing work and a bunch of transactional work and licensing and a, a bunch of other stuff, where I met this woman named Michelle Dennity who came to work. For son, and I was like, "Who is this person?" <laughs> She's. A I must freaking. take her to every presentation I ever give. <laughs> <laughs> and our presentations were legendary back in the day. They were whips. They were handcuffs. And I wish I was joking. I am not. I can neither confirm nor deny, but maybe I have a drawer <laughs> with that stuff still in it. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, then I went off to my illustrious career at Intel Corporation, where I brought the fun because they desperately needed it. Again, switched my practice areas a bunch of times, made VP, became their chief privacy and security counsel. And after 15 years there, Uber came a knocking and said, we really want a leader to be our first CPO. And by then they really had a new executive staff. My lovely boss, Tony West, who graduated a year before I did from Stanford Law. So uh, I wanted to help turn it around and I had not had a pre-IPO experience before. And I thought this is my chance to do something different and really grow um, something from a very small team to something really significant to help the company, you know, meet its IPO obligations. So there you go. Well, I, I love this about smarter markets because it's like, yeah, I thought I would just dabble in, I don't know, a global jogger nut redefining how people transport themselves and feed themselves. And then along came a little pandemic to top it all off. So let's get into it a little bit about what it means to have transformed, I think, you know, the the medallion type black cab, classic, get me a ride from the airport kind of service. I mean, what what is Uber when you look at it through a digital lens, Ruby? Well, it's a platform to get things places, right? So people know us as getting people places. And since the pandemic, food, <laughs> uh, we were doing it before the pandemic, but obviously the food delivery business ballooned during the pandemic. And that's certainly where I use all my credits <laughs> because I like the good food. And, you know, now it's groceries, it's peer-to-peer -peer deliveries, it's businesses hiring us to deliver their things and people. And Really, it's just a mechanism to make it easy to get the stuff you want to go where you need it. And um, that's about as simple as it is. So there was a big pivot during the pandemic for us to try to service people the way they needed it. And that was an exciting time to live through. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I've never seen a company switch up so fast on both um, delivery and also all the health implications that came with it and trying to do right by the careers and everything else. So it was a fun and stressful time all at the same time. 
Yeah, exactly. It's a big challenge. It's a big leadership challenge. And let's get into the who, because you said, you know, when you want to do this and you want to do that, there's a lot of different personas interacting with this global platform. How do you think about identity? How do you evolve into it? And then, of course, you know, our fan favorite, privacy engineering. Let's talk about that a little bit. That is our fan favorite. You were the first one to ever talk about it that way that I knew before I even knew what you were talking about. So (laughs) (laughs) That often happens, to be fair. (laughs) But I was happy to support it because when you come up with a new idea, I always like it. So it's interesting because I think the average person who doesn't work in a field that you're giving this much thought thinks about identity as a singular, relatively stable thing. But once you pause a moment, you realize it's not stable at all. It's truly, I mean, how do, how do we define ourselves? Who, who are we? Not to be too existential about it, but, you know, it, it evolves in different contexts. And so I was thinking about it in preparation for our little chat here today. And I thought, well, how would I identify myself? I thought, well, just in this past week, I'm a mom. I'm a singleton. I'm an attorney. I'm a rabble rouser. I'm a shenanigans instigator. Yes. I'm a pet caretaker. I'm a cocktail creator, as you well know. Yes. And, you know, I'm a law school alum. We had a little create the cocktail with the law school alum. See how I, two identities in one uh, and more. And the context is so important because in many contexts, I'm not the cocktail creator. I am the person who is going to kick ask somehow or another, and I really don't want to be too frivolous about it. In other contexts, I'm nothing but frivolity, (laughs) as you well know. Yes, we love frivolity. I'm a little bit of both today. Exactly. (laughs) And so it's a complicated thing to actually unpack, and I'm that much more sensitized to it in, you know, today's world because of the lack of progress we've made with people with immutable characteristics who are still being treated as the other, the less, the outsiders, you know, um, people of color, LGBTQ, disabled, socioeconomic, all the ways that underrepresented people are being mistreated in the society. And and so figuring this out is important, really important to people's lives, their livelihood, their survivability. COVID has hit people of color worse. I mean, it's important that we, we really give identities they're due because they're also things that can be easily attacked and undermined in ways that hurt people. Absolutely. And I I think so many ways to go with this. I, I, I think let's start at our foundations because Ruby was the one who showed me how to do the policing of the sun marks back in the day when I wasn't really a trademark lawyer. I was a patent litigator uh, with a recruiter that said, hey, here's this trademark person. But you loved it. You didn't know what you were I missing till did. you came over to the dark side. <laughs> I gotta say, I love the theory of trademarks. And I think it, I mean, it's never left me, obviously, because, and I say obviously, which is probably not so obviously, as Ruby said, like, rarely do I say anything that's a straight line. But when I think about what you've just said about the contextual value, and you continue to say things are important, things can be harmed, things that we care about, things over time, it really um, harkens back to what were we trying to get at with things that were ephemeral rights, Like when we said an assault should be 
something that is worthy of a, a criminal designation. Like when we say a trademark should designate quality as well as origin of source. It's not just something you litigate over from money. It also tells people what's valuable and, and so on through it goes. So let's talk about that thread a little bit. How are you contextualizing as we do in, in IP law and standards and policies, which are a little more established than in, in privacy and identity? How, if at all, are you carrying over these principles into the business of these various personas? You've got drivers, you've got writers, you've got people who are supplying food, you're people receiving, I don't know, prescription medication. I don't know if that's a delivery issue yet um, for Uber. But when you said that Uber is really a platform for things that need to get places, and some of those things are humans, and some of those things are things, how does that play into your background in, in intellectual property, if at all? There are calls to consider, you know, personal data property, right? And I don't consider this whole data thing. I don't even consider it all my data. It's, I mean, my, even my driver's license is created by the state. It's not actually something I created myself. Right. You know, I, I don't subscribe to that at all. And so I do look at it different and it is so incredibly contextual in a way that I don't think intellectual property really is. Well, intellectual property, once it's defined as such, is put in some kind of concrete form. And our identities are so ephemeral and context is so important. And everybody's contributing to what my identity is. Even your thoughts about me and how you may have portrayed me to somebody I know then adds on to my identity. I may not even know it, but how I'm perceived by others is part of my identity. I mean, if a tree falls and nobody's there to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> if a cocktail is drunk and Ruby's not there to prepare it, is I'm it just really saying. a cocktail? Yeah. So if there's nobody to perceive me, do I even have an identity? Now people really need a drink, but you see my point. <laughs> people are listening to this hopefully Saturday morning. So we're going to have to like go into like coffee drinks and things, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, everybody's contributing in their own way. And so it's very hard to say I own all of that myself and have a right to license that to anyone and then maybe make a profit off of it. So when we see politicians or others saying, oh, this is a data right and you should just get paid for it. And I'm thinking... Well, one, that's not 100% true. And, and two, my data in a vacuum is not worth much. I'm not the president. <laughs> well, even so, um, let's not get into that. <laughs> all right. But my point is, any president of anything. Um, of anything. So, <laughs> so it's in bulk. You know, it's, it's trying to figure out these preferences that are enough to make somebody a buck that count. And so my individual contributions were pennies. Uh, so, you know, good luck making much money off of that. So I, I don't really view it the same. But that said, I do think that the rigorous background you need to analyze things. And frankly, in the trademark world, as you well know, how much human emotion plays into it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you try to take somebody's infringing trademark away and they're like, but it was the name of my garage band in high school. And I'm like, you are welcome to call a garage band Sun Microsystems, but you can't call your computer company that. Exactly. So that, I think, that training of really paying attention to people and how they feel about things is super important, as you well know, to the privacy field, because it's all about how you feel about your own. I mean, everybody defines what privacy means for themselves. We don't have a standard. Absolutely. Part of the reason I love it is because it, it invites people like us to color outside of the lines. And you think that you're getting an IP lawyer, but you're getting these crazy renegade ladies who are like, hey, we're all about change. It better be fun. It better be cool. It better be repeatable. Oh, but by the way, we're hard-nosed business ladies too. So let's get all of that in one big, beautiful bucket. 
So and don't cross us. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> foolish, foolishness. Like they were warned. Like I had red hair before I had gray hair. It's a warning, right? So how do we deal with what is really you're you're pointing out so well and eloquently a cacophony of requirements that are also moment by moment. I mean, there's currency traders that listen to the show that are probably the closest sort of structurally handling that much change. I mean, 10 minutes later during active trading can be everything. So 10 minutes later trading after you've, um, I don't know, said I do or gotten married or gotten a job or had a baby like before I wasn't a mother. Now I am. How do you deal with that much noise in the system and yet build a global sound, hopefully compliant and compliant, I put in bunny quotes, because compliant to what that's changing every 10 minutes too. How do you deal with this much noise in the system? And there is a lot of noise. I mean, I thought about being a hermit since I've been on lockdown. <laughs> we kind of have but been. It, it turns out like from a data perspective, I can't, right? I am, an, as you well know, I'm an extremely, like I am built for efficiency, right? Everything has to be done quickly and well and on time. as fast as possible, right? You get, I know, I'm sorry, but it's true. It's very true. <laughs> and so I thought about it and I thought, well, I, it's impossible for me to live a practical life now uh, and take advantage of all the goodness of the modern world without allowing these pieces of information to contribute to the noise that's out there. So zero personal data isn't the answer. And we have to figure out how do you corral this data properly to develop the trust necessary to find the sweet spot in disclosure versus the sign that used to be on my daughter's door, keep out. (laughs) You know, I think that's kind of where it comes down to disclosure versus keep out. And right now, as you kind of intimated, we have this large variety of unknown and unknowable, frankly, intermediaries serving that function. And so now the torches and pitchforks are finally coming out because many people have decided they don't like those trade-offs. They don't even know what they are, but they don't like the impacts they're feeling from the trade-offs. Right. So, you know, I just bought, as you would imagine, a new pair of shoes. Of course. And now I'm seeing, of course, this exact pair of shoes all over following me around. If I didn't know how that happened, I'd be horrified. So, um, So what do you do about that? How do you build the trust? How do you figure out how to get out of the situation that I feel like is what people are feeling now, which is this worst combination of feeling like a number. I've been listening to a lot of Bob Seger lately, by the way, who said he's (laughs) going to stop touring. (laughs) On the one hand, and then, you know, you're this, you're spoke at a great big data wheel, but also you're this unique little number and plain text that can be plucked off the spoke at any given moment and identified. I'm sure it's not what Bob Seger thought when he wrote the song, but that's how I have now interpreted um, feeling like a number. But I think that's the problem you're describing, which is how do we get proper data treatment and trust? And I think about trust a lot because if you trust the person who's getting your data, you don't require as rigorous controls. And I think that's the difference between why, you know, you you may have citizens or regulators, you know, distrusting the U.S. government who may be doing the same exact things as their own governments, but it's that they don't trust the U.S. government and it's the way it operates. And so you're going to insist on more controls around it. So we're in a significant period of distrust right now. And so the calls for politicians and 
policy people to do something about it are finally being heard, although we still can't come to grips with the U.S. omnibus privacy law. But so many thoughts in that. And what I'm thinking is in the back of my mind, because sometimes like I've got one side of my Pollyanna brain that's like, that's so great. We're going to build a smarter market. We're going to control this stuff and identity is going to help us. In other ways, there's like our experience with trust. Often people who say, trust me, are in white vans with candy. How do we make trust a commodity that can be nailed down as something that you can, you want to trade on because you want to trust that, that person, that entity, that group versus trust because there's a, there's a rope hanging off a cliff and that's the only rope you've got. Um, so you have to be on certain social platforms to keep up with your relatives because that's where they are. And so maybe you don't trust them or you expect not to trust them. So I think trust is an interesting sort of landmark. And that's where I kind of, I go back into sort of systems thinking of what are our inputs, what are our outputs, and then where where do these identities and personas and, and even user journeys of that data, how do they fit in there? I mean, how do you think about that for, you know, you're in the trenches right now, I'm just talking to the trenches. <laughs> Well, and I, you know, obviously I could tell you that rebuilding trust once it's lost is 10 times harder than creating it when you're on an even playing field. So honestly, I think the only, you have to walk the talk and you have to be transparent about it so that anyone who's going to look can see what you're actually doing. I don't see any other way around it. And I think the biggest problems we've had are a lack of transparency and seriously not understanding what's happening. But that said, what the information society as it is Let's just say, for the sake of argument, that everybody's privacy policies were an easy one-pager because regulations didn't require them to keep putting 10 times more disclosures in there. Still, how many apps do you have on your phone? You know, a couple hundred. And so you still can't read them all. So then you have to sort of rely on some kind of shorthand. And people have asked me, well, what do you do? And I'll be like, well, honestly, I kind of go with my sense of a company's values overall, who the CEO is, what their values are, what they stand for, where they spend their money to sort of decide overall whether I trust this company because I can't read 200 privacy policies either and still have a real life. And so you find shortcuts and other ways to sort of try to suss out who's probably going to be a good data steward and who isn't. Who's the man behind the curtain? Yeah. And why isn't there a woman there finally? Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a longer story. <laughs> it's a one good with, point, though. Yeah, right. It's like one with like, how are we setting the tone for value? And and here we are talking about things like value and and trust. And and this is a you know sort of a hard nosed business show, right? It's like these sound soft. However, behind every long lasting sustainable business. This is what remains. It's the trust that IBM, the meat slicer company, became the huge hardware company, is now becoming the AI company. So even if it wasn't the exact same thing you trusted at first, you morph and you grow and, and trust changes and the consumers change and the, and the players change on the field. So with all of that, for me, it always comes back to this who situation. How do we look at identities in gross and identities individually and deal with things like 
safety. I mean, you guys must hear about traffic accidents and all sorts. I, I can imagine the humanity going on behind getting human beings from point A to B. <laughs> well, you know, we, we're the first ones to publish a transparency report on that, right? So, and we work with sexual assault survivors on what they want disclosed and what they don't to hook them up with law enforcement if they choose or not. You know, and then we have regulators insisting on having their names and we go to the mat on it. It's a horrible situation we're on right now in terms of even well-meaning people who have data getting forced to keep their license or something else to try to fork it over. And you, you probably, maybe you're aware that we also sued the um, LA Department of Transportation when we still had the bicycle business. And um, because, you know, US hasn't gotten its arms around public sector governance at all, like the EU has. And so you have all kinds of possibly well-meaning people thinking, well, I, I need data. Like I need data for my smart city. That's true. But you have to figure out the right data. And why do you need personally identifiable data? Wouldn't it help you more to have de-identified bulk data? And how are you securing that data? You know, those are the things they haven't had to come to grips with as much as private companies because they're not subjected to class action lawsuits and other things that would force them to do these things. And so that component, I think, is a huge driver of why the U.S. is deemed inadequate to be receiving data, personal data, from the citizens of other countries. And so I think that's one element that we could do something about relatively quickly on who we are and how to treat that data and just use more bulk data and stop trying to figure out who these people are. Because honestly, if I were an underrepresented minority, I wouldn't want some government entity to be able, let's say it's smart city, to just share that with the police anytime they wanted or, right? I mean, you would really worry. You would really worry. And, and I think economically you could be harmed by doing so. You could be prevented from going to your job. I mean, there's a million different things. Stalked. You could be tracked, yeah, physically. And it's it's interesting, too, and we keep kind of coming back to this diversity issue in a sort of lighthearted way, but it's not a lighthearted way because the way we curate and operate our identities is very different, um, I think, than, than a lot of people in different dispositions or who are born differently or who look differently um, and even generationally. Yes. And the digital identity can quickly move into a physical safety issue for people at high risk like that. And so, you know, of course, they're not going to want everyone knowing these characteristics about them if it just means they're going to be profiled and tracked in some way that's really terrible. So I think, as, you know, as an identifier, too, um, one of the favorite are also fan favorite. Maybe we should get him on the show one day. Uh, McNeely used to always say, well, you know, don't, don't you want the guy in the ambulance to know who you are and that you're allergic to penicillin? And, and I always say, of course we do. And that's what contextual identities do for you. And they also have a really important concept that we all experience called time. I may want you to have stuff while you're treating me, and then I may not want you to have the stuff anymore. So how do you deal with that from a systemic issue? And, and I'm, I'm not even like subtly leading you down the track to privacy engineering. <laughs> how do we build this stuff into our systems? <laughs> it's true. Why, how, why can't we have, yeah, I mean, why can't we have a, a, you know, a disappearing identity? It just self-explodes, it detonates after a certain amount of time, and you have, if you want to, the right to resubscribe 
But, you know, when I check out of the hospital, I've decided I'm going to give it a month till uh, my treatment is pretty much understood and done or over. And then it's going to detonate. And if I go back, I'll just resubscribe again. I mean, that would be something I think that people would be very interested in, especially if it was easy, right? And I'm talking, of course, about our most sensitive data, health data, financial data, kids' data, so that it isn't a forever. In fact, when I went to my own medical center, this is several years, quite a few years ago now, you would have to show your license to make sure it's you. And they grabbed it without asking and scanned it. I said, what are you doing? Well, we need this in our system. I said, you absolutely don't. Well, then you're going to need to show it every time you come in. I said, happy to. I don't come in that often. <laughs> now go delete that. But this is the thought. It's always what's easiest for us, right? This is the business talking now or the government or whoever. We want to do what's easiest for us. And so we on the receiving end as the consumer suffer. And that that trade-off has to stop. Yeah, I think so too. And I think um, it's a really interesting intersection between, so we've got intellectual property, whether or not this is, I don't think it's a true fit. I agree with you. I don't think it's a property per se, but I do think it's an ephemeral right of sorts um, to have a right to your own self-sovereign identity, but also you incur obligations to others. So I've gone to the, me the medical thing and I have incurred a debt. So that part of that ephemera stays. The other part where anyone can look into my records and go, ooh, Michelle Dennedy, so interesting. That goes away. So when I think about putting all this stuff together and I think about Uber as sort of a, a metaphor, if you will, even for brick and mortar companies, every company is trying to get the right who in the room to build the right what for another set of who's. And then we have an administrative layer on top of that that says, are we doing things within compliance? Are we doing things, are we paying our bills? And then the final sort of ESG, we had a whole series on ESG reporting up at boards. Are we showing ourselves to be good digital citizens? Are we showing ourselves to be good investment targets? Because maybe you got a little hand slapperoni before Ruby got there, mind you. How has... Uber racing back, hiring people like Ruby, hiring privacy engineers, having huge champions program, all the good stuff going on. How does that bubble up to a higher level of measurable trust and how we're actually looking at ourselves as a, as one business island, if you will, in a sea of innovation? How does that all fit? You have to actually do something that shows people the difference. We've just actually published our second ESG report and there is lot of data in there. And we do other transparency reports besides the ones I just mentioned. So we are publishing stuff that gives people insight. We also have a bunch of features that we put in there just to make it a better service for people, right? And for example, COVID is a perfect one. I mean, you can imagine as we're dealing more with health issues that uh, my team had extra work, just didn't actually slow down at all. And imagine. And so for example, um, we needed to be able to tell if people had masks on but we don't need to authenticate them. We don't even need to know who you are. We really just want an object identifier to say, is it a face and does it have a mask on it? And we got a few questions about that. You know, why can't you just take a picture of a mask in a hand? How are we gonna know it's a mask if it's in your hand? And by the way, it shouldn't be in your hand, it should be on your face. And lastly, everyone says, don't touch your mask. <laughs> this was a, a health regulator, so. Hygiene, it's hard for us. You know, you think about ways that you can actually talk to people about 
that make things better. You know, you don't want to give us your address. Just go to a corner. We'll pick you up there. And by the way, we'll scrub your exact address a little bit later after the driver can check his billings. And then I'll just know the general vicinity dropped you off. You know, I mean, stuff like that is you have to be able to talk about it and demonstrate it. You have to walk the talk. It can't just be all fluff and, you know, principles. When we published our principles, I went around describing to investors examples of how we brought those to life. That's where the rubber meets the road. Are you correlating those examples to quarterly or or regular or even just exemplar business metrics? Are you looking at like how people are trusting you more or willing to take more rides or or repeat? It's really hard to isolate why somebody, you know, because there's so many factors that go into it. But we do do periodic surveys and stuff. Just, I mean, right now we're still in sort of in the awareness stage and stuff of, you know, are you aware of these privacy features in the app and things like that, where we periodically measure in terms of, you know, the impact on the stock price or the number of users or things that is so hard given the many other factors to evaluate. I haven't been able to figure out a way to just isolate that component in any meaningful way. Yeah. I don't think anyone has yet, but it's coming. It's coming for you. We're going to have enough data to actually do that eventually. So let's go into the future, Ms. Zeffo. Imagine yourself in a future-facing, sovereign identity rocket ship. What, what's an exciting market? I mean, what could we do better? Or what, what could we do bigger? Or what would you build presupposing that we have figured out how to walk the walk in privacy, uh, make up for our 20, 30 years of tech debt where we pretended that it was about encryption or, or de-identification, which are both um, interesting tools, but not privacy and, and certainly not efficacy for identity. Let's imagine that we built something really, really cool. Either you can choose your own venture here. Like, what does that look like? Or where are you? What are you doing? Or what kind of business would you, you know, at, you know, are there jacuzzis driving around that I can order up from Uber and come to my house and just, I don't know, have, have Ruby drinks on demand? You know, honestly, the transportation problems, especially where we live, right? One of the reasons I was really glad for Uber was you can't get a cab anywhere. <laughs> you can't. No. And, and if so, you did, it's it, like five bajillion dollars. Right. And so, you know, you can't. I, I would have people visit who'd be like going out to the corner looking for a cab. I'm like, excuse me, <laughs> it's not New York. Um, so I do think the transportation issues need to be fixed. Of course, our infrastructure for a wealthy state is terrible. Um, getting cars off the road is important. So anyway, we can, you know, improve public transportation, you know, is, is going to be better for as far as I'm concerned. But more importantly, what I think about isn't so much what kind of business I'd want to go into. It would be more about what kind of back-end engineering are we going to have that just makes things easier. Just because I don't think my identity is my own property right to treat like IP doesn't mean I don't think I should be able to control the elements of it. So even though my driver's license I did not create, I still don't think everybody should have it. And so figuring out these ways of sovereign identity in a way that anyone could actually easily control it, maybe it's simple third-party trust verification systems that once you're in the bubble, it's easier for people who can't and won't ever know how anything works to just say, oh, they've been vetted by somebody who matters. Now I can give them a yes for these particular purposes, right? If it were that easy, I think we would all sleep at night. 
And I don't see any reason they can't because I don't really think of it as a technology problem so much. It seems solvable to me somehow. Am I wrong? I think you're right. I think you're, I, well, I think you're right, but I think, you know, you don't go into business like we do would be pessimists, right? <laughs> that would be a doom cycle. <laughs> it's true. You have to have a certain amount of positivity to keep at it. <laughs> you do, or a finely honed sense of irony. I don't know which. You know, because the situation we're in now just can't can't keep going. And we've figured out how to solve some of the world's biggest problems with technology. So why can't we use it to fix technology, right? Why can't we use technology to fix technology? <laughs> well, and I, I think we can use people to fix technology too. As, you've, as you, you've alluded to many times, it's like for a while we were sort of slaves to technology. And it was like, well, privacy is dead because you have two choices in compute. It's this or that. It's all controlled by the same thing. And if you want bandwidth, blah, 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 blah. But now we have choices. I mean, I look at the way all of our collective childrens are, are interacting. There's a different persona for grandma. There's a different persona for me. There's certainly a different persona for... Yeah, who knows what we don't know? <laughs> oh, you know, I, I do know enough about what I don't know that I don't want to know. Exactly. <laughs> my parents never wanted to know. I don't know about yours. They're like... Oh, God. My poor parents. They still believe. Bless their hearts. Oh, God bless them. <laughs> yeah, I, I, exactly. So um, I, I have to believe that there there's a better way down the road for everybody. And to your point about people, I just want to I, I say this all the time when we're talking about fairness, racial justice, AI, you know, how to get the bias out of it, all of those things. And I say, you, you know, AI was created by people. Somebody created that thing. It's not really, a by the way, if you're one of those people who thinks it's taking over the world, just simmer down. It's got a long way to go. All right. When it can create people, then start to worry. So, you know, we got to fix society first. We have to fix society in this terrible situation we're in right now, where the haves and have nots, the same people in power since, uh, you know, our country at least was born and do something about that. Or we're never going to make real progress on being able to control these things and having social justice and equity and all the other things we want for a fair and just society. So we still got to work on that. Fix that and then get back to me. <laughs> um, so with all of that in mind, um, let's come up with a good thought to close us off. Ruby, where are we going? Where have we been? Well, I mean, honestly, my thought is what I always tell people who, if I'm wearing my I Heart Privacy shirt or something, give me the poo-poo or the stink eye. At least I think that's why they're giving me the stink eye. Um, <laughs> I, I do feel like there is a better future in store, but it takes a village, right? So don't throw away your privacy rights because it's just too hard and do nothing. You don't have to do everything, but do what matters to you. I do have privacy settings on all my important accounts, very well curated and accounted for and not so much in things like recipe sites that don't matter. <laughs> You know, and so I would encourage people not to be too downhearted about the situation today, to just keep plugging away, do what they can, what they're comfortable with, and help, you know, help us build something better for the future. Because I do think now is a, is a real pivoting point with all the different pressures that we have from various external factors on us right now that are impacting what we're all doing. And so it's a good time to really think about possibilities and how to make those first steps in a better direction. Yeah, I love that. And I think, you know, every new 
and Smarter Market <laughs> starts with a dream and, and a person that believes that thing. So even though we may be pennies on the dollar for our, you know, our browsing activity as single human beings, I think our ideas absolutely can help create that sort of thunderbolt of aha-ism and marketism and market value where people start looking at transparency reports and saying, this company can be transparent, not because they want to talk, but because they've done. And that's a company I want to work for. And here's a company that respects that I'm a human being and sometimes I'm in business mode and sometimes I'm in play mode and that doesn't muddle down to some mediocre score. So I think I think that's a, a really positive way. Don't lose heart, <laughs> participate, and understand that each one of us is setting a requirement in a smarter market. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Smarter Markets and our continuing examination of digital identity and its role in building a trust-based economy. Please help us get the word out about the podcast by leaving your ratings and reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Your support and engagement means the world to us, as does your help spreading the word about Smarter Markets via social media and word of mouth. On behalf of ABEX, I'm Michelle Dennity. See you again next week. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. 